Well, the only reason I'm here is because I want to help you stay connected and experience true connection with your with your spouse, with your mate, with your kids, with God. And uh, if you're disconnected, to, to reconnect through whatever season you're in, whatever challenges you're facing, the uh, constant is we all need love and connection. So hopefully tonight I'll help you to do that better. Um, what I want to do is start off with a little video that's self-explanatory, and then we'll uh, get into the message tonight. You know, it's it's funny, but the fact is, without having and expressing feelings, without true empathy, real connection can't occur. The nail in this little video could represent any problem causing a loved one emotional pain and producing negative effects. What can we learn from this? I want to just give you a little lesson within tonight's lesson. So this is my five things that I would want to teach you. Before focusing on and trying to fix or to remove the nail, this is what you should think about. Number one is have they asked for help with it. So if someone comes to you with a problem or they're not even asking for a problem, it's like they're just having a problem, have they asked for help with it. It's presumptuous to diagnose and treat without consent. My wife specializes in that. You know, they always get you to sign a consent form when you go to the doctor. She just diagnoses and treats without consent. And usually she's right. It can also be a case of arrogance, you know, thinking that you know better what they need than they do. Number two, and I've learned this and seen this over and over as a counselor so many times, Just because people complain about or experience pain in their life does not necessarily mean that they want help with it. Have you figured that out? Sometimes they may not be ready to put forth the effort to change. In other cases, they may have been become comfortable in their discomfort. Um, Sometimes it may have become so much a part of their identity that they're just not ready to let it go. Number three before focusing on trying to fix or remove the nail, keep in mind that number th- that the removing the nail can sometimes cause additional unforeseen problems, like literally uncontrollable bleeding and brain damage. You know, when someone is impaled with something or they get a piece of glass stuck in their body from an explosion or whatnot, and they're rushed to the hospital. If the paramedics come on the scene, they don't usually remove it. You know why? Because it may actually be blocking an artery, and if they remove it, they'll bleed out in a minute and a half. Well, examples of this could be like advising a loved one or a friend to quit a job, practice tough love, or to confront a loved one. We've all done that before when we listen to them complain about their problem, maybe even our spouse. It's easy to be an armchair quarterback and a sideline critic when you're not actually the one taking the hits or having to deal with all the stuff that comes in the aftermath of whatever it is you're advising them to do. Be careful about playing Dr. Phil. Be aware of the savior complex. Number four, before giving advice, ask 
what is it that you want my help with? Or how can I support you? You got an adult child that is grown up and moved away. They're going to frequently, I don't know about you, but mine did, frequently would cause us with various problems like we're supposed to just jump in and solve their problem, like rescue it, like offer some money or or help. And many of us, when we're approached by someone who has a problem, that's what we think we need to do. You know, you can save yourself a lot of headaches and trouble and keep some of the hair that you have and actually keep some money in your bank account is learn to ask the question, what is it you want my help with? It amazes me sometimes the look on people's face after they've spent an hour or 45 minutes telling me about all their problems. And my question to them is, okay, I, I've, I've heard this, 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 and this. Now, what is it you want my help with? They look at me like, isn't it obvious? Yeah, I know. I hear that, you know, you got money troubles and you got problems with your spouse and you got, you know, an anger issue and you, you know, you're dealing with your kid over here and you don't know about your work relationships and that, uh, uh, you know, your house flooded. I get that. And I feel for you. What is it you want my help with? I teach and I have taught all my counselors to do that. That's all my supervisor asked me for two years when he was training me to become a counselor. I'd come in there and I'd talk about a case, and he'd say, Dudley, what is it that they want help with? And it was amazing to me how many times I didn't know. I could tell you what their problems were, but what is it that they really want your help with? Number five, often all people really want like the woman in the video, hard to believe, is for you to listen, understand, and connect emotionally. Or even just to know that you're trying to understand and empathize. And you know, you ought to keep in mind what I told you on Sunday, that research has shown that advice is only effective 5 to 10% of the time. So just you just soon keep it to yourself, quite frankly, unless they really ask for it. Because it's probably not going to help them. And even if it seems to help them and it seems to be right, they're probably not going to apply it anyway. So just save yourself some stress. So there's three things that we all need to do to really be able to connect with another person. And it applies to God too. And I want to talk about it with regard to marriage, but it applies to every single relationship that you have. In order to be able to really connect Number one, you have to be emotionally engaged and in touch with and expressing your feelings. The truth of it is we were created to feel. And I want to show you a little diagram if you put it up on the screen. This is based on an actual scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. I've been using this for years. Uh, And that scripture says, may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete. It defines their three parts of a human being. There's a body, physical body, which I would say is what the Bible refers to as the flesh. You know, all of our senses, taste, touch, smell, sight, all of that's the body. And the brain, that gray matter in your head, is a part of your body. It's a part of the flesh. 
when you die, your brain dies. That makes the point that your mind is different than your brain. Because your mind doesn't die when you die, but your brain does. The brain is like the hard drive. So you, you have a body, that's the physical part of you, and then you have a soul, that's the mind, the will, and the emotions, and uh, the word soul in the Bible, if you, if you read the word soul, chances are it's the Greek word suke, which means it's where we get the words, uh, it's what word, what root word is used to create the word psychology, it's the psychological self. It's also what the Bible refers to as the heart of man. The inner man is the soul, which also has a spirit. So what I would say is that we are a spiritual being with a soul, that's our personality, in an earth suit, which is our body. And um, that's the way I've always thought of people. And I think it would help to think about your relationships that way. If you think about an anger problem, uh, a problem with anxiety, a problem with depression, a relationship problem, uh, uh, an alcohol or drug problem, addiction, any problem that you have, you, they're gonna, there can potentially be physiological components or causes to that problem. There can be psychological components to that problem. You know, the way you're thinking might be kind of screwed up. Uh, you might be making poor choices. Uh, you may not be dealing with your feelings or expressing your feelings. And there could be spiritual problems. You know, if you go with depression to a really good, charismatic, full gospel preacher, they're going to say you need to get red, white with God, confess sin. They're going to uh, say you need to cast the devil out and... Uh, you know, and get right spiritually. If you went to a psychologist or a counselor, they would say you need to change the way you think. Um, you need to start dealing with your feelings different. You may need to make healthy choices. If you were to go to a doctor or a psychiatrist, they would say, you know, you, you need to get a physical. You need to maybe uh, exercise, eat right, get enough rest. You might have some chemical imbalances in your brain. They might treat that with medication, or you might have a thyroid problem that might be causing you problems, and they would treat that. The way I look at it as a Christian counselor is they're all important. They're not like one's... I mean, they're all important. This is how God made us. We were made like this before the fall, not after the fall. And we were created in God's image. God's a spirit. When Jesus came on earth, he had a body, he had a soul, and he had a spirit. And so, the reason I want to tell you this is because you'll notice that part of us is our feelings right here. I don't believe the feelings are your emotions or your flesh. Now, that doesn't necessarily express the views of Pastor Tyler, this church. I don't necessarily know what everybody in this church believes, but I'm going to just tell you what I believe. The emotions are part of the soul. When you become a Christian and you say yes to Jesus, your spirit is connected to God through Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes inside of you and your spirit is made alive again. 
And the relationship with God infuses, you're infused with his love and his power. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is now living inside of you. But you still have to renew your mind. You have to learn to take your thoughts captive. You need to learn to think right. And you need to learn how to deal with your emotions. Uh, If you read the Psalms, two-thirds of the Psalms David wrote, he's expressing anger and depression. They got a book called Lamentations in the Bible. The Bible is full of emotions all over the place. And you need to learn how to make healthy choices. And you need to learn how to also manage and take care of your body and crucify the flesh. Be led by the Spirit and crucify the flesh. But in the meantime, you need to learn how to deal with your soul because your soul is the interface between your body and your spirit. If you don't deal with your soul, it's not going to just automatically just be renewed because you became a Christian. I get people referred to me by churches and pastors all the time that have experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit multiple times that have been prayed over, had demons cast out of them, have, have been in Bible studies, have, have been trying to live the Christian life, and they're still struggling with some sort of emotion or problem. And part of the problem is this right here. So I want to talk primarily tonight about where I've come to in my life after 56 years about my understanding of what you need to know and what you need to do in order to really connect with another human being, especially when it comes to your emotions. Because I want to submit to you that if you don't, if you're not in touch with your emotions and you don't deal with your emotions and you don't learn to identify and express them, you're not going to be able to really connect with God or with other people. The Scripture says to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you look up all those words, heart means with the feelings, with emotion. So we were created in the image of God. God has feelings. If you read the Bible, God has lots of feelings. Jesus had feelings. And we can look to the life of Christ for clues to a healthy emotional lifestyle. All these words, I'm going to just read a little, a little paragraph. All these feeling words you could find in the Bible. They're not reference. I'm not going to give you the reference. It would take too much time. But all of these things come straight out of Scripture. Jesus felt compassion. He was angry, indignant, and consumed with zeal. He was troubled, greatly distressed, very sorrowful, depressed, deeply moved, and grieved. He sighed, he wept, he sobbed, he groaned. He was in agony, he was surprised and amazed. He rejoiced very greatly, was full of joy, he greatly desired and he loved. How many of us give ourselves permission to feel so deeply? For we Christians, Jesus Christ is a perfect example of what it means to be fully human and made in the image of God. Jesus was not afraid of his emotions. If we didn't have feelings, we could not love, nor could we enjoy God's creation or each other. The best things in life, love, connection, empathy, comfort, compassion, vulnerability, resilience, ice cream, football, sex, steak, We wouldn't be able to love any of those things if we didn't feel. We wouldn't be able to enjoy them. 
And this is the thing about emotions. Emotions in and of themselves are not morally good or bad. Rather, they are divinely created indicators that help us to survive. God made us with emotions. Emotions are to the soul what pain is to the body. If you're walking along and you step in a hole and you crack one of the bones in your leg, searing pain is going to be registered in your brain and you're going to stop walking and tend to your leg. In the same way, feelings are to the soul what pain is to the body. They're signals. They're, they're what we, we should pay attention to them and look at what they're saying. Not necessarily live our lives based upon our emotions alone. That's not what I'm saying. But they're there for a reason. Most of us, the truth of it is, and most of the people that I've talked to, including myself, expend tremendous amount of energy trying to suppress, ignore, tune out, or numb what our emotions are telling us. The information our emotions provide can be life-giving and restore a sense of, of peace and balance. We need to be willing to lean in and listen. Whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're melancholy or sanguine, whether you're very expressive or an introvert, doesn't matter. In truth, emotions, especially because they were created by God, are exquisitely intelligent. And it's illogical to disregard what they're telling us. Emotions shape and coordinate our experience and communicates our needs to ourselves and others. The Latin word or root word of the word emotions is movere, M-O-V-E-R-E, which literally means to move, suggesting strong feelings literally move us to approach or to avoid. Emotions are a great motivational force pushing us to action. That's part of their function. The problem is, whether you're a pursuer or a withdrawer, like I talked about last time, many of us don't understand what our emotions are trying to communicate or where they're trying to move us. Because emotions are not always understood or contained, people in many cultures, including many Christians that I've talked to, mistrust emotions, viewing them as misleading, needing to be tamed or controlled. Many of us are raised to believe that maturity is about governing emotions and relying on our thinking. As a result, emotions are often pathologized and viewed as something to overcome, not to be embraced. Emotions are often labeled as weak, dramatic, irrational, and problematic, and even in some denominations, sinful. Many of us learn at a young age, or somewhere throughout the course of our lives, how to suppress our emotions. Thoughts and actions are important. Being led by the Spirit is important. Crucifying the flesh is important. Learning to take care of our bodies are important, but learning to deal with our feelings is also important. Emotions are attachment, connection, language. They're the right brain. They're, they're wired in. They take precedence in our brain. They seep out of every pore. We're often about as effective at stopping an emotion as we are at 
stopping a sneeze. This is really interesting. Neuroscientists have learned in the past three to four decades that our emotions arise out of the most primitive part of our brain and that they are produced incredibly rapidly. God designed it that way. Emotions can't afford to be slow. Informing our reaction time in certain circumstances may make the difference between life and death. James Gross, a scientist who studies emotions, discovered it takes one-tenth of a second for your brain to register and react to a stimulus. So if you're walking in the woods with a friend and see a shadow move in the grass, it takes one-tenth of a second for your brain to register a threat and show fear on your face. You remember how fast that little baby picked up on the fact that its mother stopped responding in the still face experiment? One-tenth of a second for your face to register fear. Sending an immediate message to your friend that something is wrong. It takes six-tenths of a second, still pretty fast, for the message to get to the frontal cortex, which is the thinking part of the brain where the brain determines the stimulus was just a shadow if, or, or the leaves blowing in the wind and not a snake. The problem is the half-second lag time between the initial registration of the threat and the frontal cortex's dis- decision to regard it, disregard it. When your friend whose brain reads the fear in your face in one-tenth of a second asks what's wrong and you say, Nothing, everything is fine. You are sending a mixed message because your face said that there is a problem while your words are saying everything is fine. We tend to believe the emotion. And this is the thing. Appreciating the speed and the wisdom of our emotional signals is the key to honest and direct communication. Emotions, I think, are like small children. They demand an attention and will get it one way or the other, won't they? Pay attention to and care for them properly, and they'll settle down and behave. If you don't, they'll continue to act out in ways that cause problems. If you try to deny, dismiss, demand, punish, or get irritated or irate, they frequently will get worse. The challenge is to pay attention and discern what is really going on, that what is really needed. Just like with a baby. Are they hungry, hurting, afraid, need to be changed, held? If you can identify and meet the need, they usually settle down. The same is true of the way that we deal with our own feelings on the inside. They end up coming out sideways or in a way that we don't want them to if we don't deal with them. Emotions ultimately are the root of why we do a lot of the crazy things and unhealthy things that we do. If what Thomas Aquinas said is true, that all sin is rooted in a legitimate God-given desire, then it's very important to pay attention to your emotions, particularly your deeper emotions, because emotions are always linked to needs and frequently to unmet needs. So if you don't really know what it is you're feeling, you can't identify it. You, you, you can't even put words to it. Don't even know what to call it. 
then chances are you're going to have trouble figuring out what it is you need. And if you don't really know what you feel and what you need, when your feelings rise up inside of you, sadness, anger, hurt, fear, shame, and you're not really paying attention to it, and you're not really paying attention to what the need is that the feelings are moving you toward, then chances are you will either turn up the heat and become a raving lunatic, crazy, you know, acting all crazy, or you will shut down and withdraw because you don't know what else to do, or you will go and use something that is not healthy to medicate yourself, to get rid of whatever it is that you're feeling that you don't really even know what to put, you don't even know what to call it. So on the handout that you have, there's an exercise. I'm not going to take time to really go through it tonight. I just want to explain it to you, and you can go work with it later. This is just a little exercise to help you, to help all of us, to learn to identify and pay attention to our emotions, learn how to embrace our emotions. And the exercise basically is a little written part there. But in order to learn how to name and deal with your emotions, what you need to first learn to do is recognize where you feel it in your body. So tightness in your chest, a funny feeling in your stomach, a twitching sensation, you feel your blood boiling, your your fists clenching, your jaw knotting up, headache. And then what you try to do is you try to name the emotion. And if you go online and you look at uh, emotion lists or just Google uh, types of emotions or names of emotions, you come up with all kinds of lists that list all kinds of emotions. Put up there, if you would, the five basic emotions. And it's five basic feelings. Uh, and I believe all of the feelings come somewhere under these five. There's glad, sad, mad, and then fear and shame. And you can see all the derivatives of those feelings. So you have to learn how to identify in your body, put words to it, and then, uh, I'm sorry, name it. You ever heard the expression, name it? You got to name it to tame it? It's, It's hard to change an attitude or a behavior if you don't name and own the emotion and need that goes with it. Sometimes it's impossible. So you notice where it's at in your body. You name the emotion. You, um, what am I missing here? You identify what need might be connected to it. What is the emotion telling you that you need? For example, fear requires soothing. Sadness may want comfort. Anger needs to be listened to. Helplessness longs for some control. Hopelessness desires some hope. You know, if you think about what you need, what you feel you'll be better able to figure out what you need. And then you'll be able to decide what to do. You can exercise your thinking and your will, but you're, not, you're going to have trouble doing that if you don't know what you feel. 
then you'll just be trying to think or act your way out of something, and you're not really even sure what's going on inside of you. So, five basic feelings. Y'all are familiar with all of them. You can look up there at the words. You could probably identify with them. Feelings can be secondary and primary. This is kind of an important concept. Secondary emotions are reactive, defensive, and protective. Primary emotions are the deeper feelings that reveal our real concerns and needs. For example, tears or hurt can cover anger. Anger can cover hurt, fear, and shame. For some people, it's easier to say that they're hurt than angry. For others, it's more comfortable to say that they're angry than to be hurt. So I want you to look also on this little handout that you got here. For those of you, who, who was not here on Sunday? Raise your hand. Okay, I would encourage you to, I think they've made a videotape or they audio taped it. But I have here uh, a, a little grid with pursuer and withdrawer. A pursuer is someone when there's disconnection or stress who turns up the heat, who fights, demands, and protests. That's their stance. The withdrawer is the one who wants to turn off the heat. They want to run away, disengage, and shut down. And we talked about how often a pursuer marries a withdrawer. That when, you, when you're dealing with disconnection, when you become disconnected, or you're dealing with a stress, chances are you're going to do one of those two things. The other option is you go medicate your pain, and either one of those people can also, in that stance, medicate their pain. So the behavior on the outside, the pursuer looks like critical, attacking, blaming, pushy, controlling, and needy. The withdrawer, they look like they're shutting down, they're avoiding, they're hiding, they're detaching, they're distant, defensive. The view of the other would be like the pursuer would look at the withdrawer and would think, you don't care, you're selfish, you'd probably rather be at work than at home. The withdrawer would look at the pursuer and say, you're demanding, you're too emotional, you're too needy, you're, overrea you're overreacting. On the surface, the emotions that are visible the secondary emotions, for the pursuer, they're anxious, angry, and desperate. You can see that. For the withdrawer, they look frustrated, numb, and overwhelmed. So, see all these pictures? The pictures at the top are women, and these are uh, married couples, where the woman is the pursuer and the man is the withdrawer. And you can see, the woman's pursuing, she's protesting the disconnection, the man's shutting down and withdrawing. So when, when she's looking at him, she's thinking all those things, she's showing those feelings, he's seeing those things, thinking those things, showing those feelings. And then at the bottom you have the man as the pursuer and the woman as the withdrawer. You got the angry man you got the pleading man, and you got the man that's trying to reason with his wife. He won't, she won't communicate with him. The problem is that these people, they do this on the surface and go back and forth, 
And the more one turns up the heat, the, the more the other one shuts down. And the more they shut down, the more the anxious and angry the other one gets. And the more they protest, the more they protest and get angry, the more this one feels like uh, they're frustrated and, and, and overwhelmed and the more they want to shut down. Well, what, what's going on underneath that is all the deeper feelings and the deeper needs. Underneath, you see these women at the top? I want you to look at their faces. They look like they're anxious and angry and frustrated. They're saying, you're wrong in a million ways. The guy looks like he doesn't want to listen. At the bottom, it looks like the same way in, in reverse. The guy's protesting and the woman is withdrawing. The guy looks like he's demanding. He's too needy. You know, she's saying, not now. You're always asking too much of me. It's never enough for you. So what neither person understands is what's going on underneath that. And what's going on underneath that, a lot of what's going on is fear and shame. Now, there's, there's, I said there's five basic feelings. So you can be sad, like hurt, rejected, depressed, lonely, hopeless. You can be mad, which is anger, frustrated, irritated, disgust. Um, but... I want to just spend a, a little few minutes talking about fear and shame. If you pull up the Genesis verses, um, in the Garden of Eden, when God created Adam and Eve, and, and he made, made them and told them to go be fruitful and multiply, go to the next verse. And you can see he made the man, and then he made the woman, and he told them, you can eat from any tree, but from the tree of the knowledge you're going to need, you shall not eat, for the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then it says at the end of that chapter uh, that he made man and wife and they were naked and not ashamed. So they were vulnerable, open, and not ashamed. And then keep going. Put up the next verse. And then when he saw the, when, when, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate, and she gave it to her husband who was with her, and he ate, and the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Keep going. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to them, Where are you? And he said, uh, I, I, When then the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman thou, that thou gavest to me, she gave, from me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The servant deceived me and I ate. So, there's a lot I could say about this, but one thing I want to say is when you feel fear and shame, you hide and blame. And if you think about it, when you think about the pursuer and the withdrawer, the pursuer is in a blaming posture and the withdrawer is in a hiding posture. But they're both covering up their deeper feelings. 
the withdrawer, I mean the pursuer, underneath feels I'm unimportant, I don't matter, I'm unworthy, I'm unlovable. Their fear is that the other person is going to leave them, that they're going to be left alone. That's the worst case scenario. That's why they protest. That's why they turn up the heat. That's why they insist on talking because they don't want to be disconnected. They don't want to be left alone. That's their worst fear. But the withdrawer doesn't see that. They just see the anger, the anxiety, the pushing, the demanding. What about the withdrawer? The withdrawer underneath, they, they fear rejection. They fear failure, that they're, they're not getting it right, that they can't do it right. That, that it's like they're walking through a minefield. Their flay is going to blow up at any moment. So they withdraw to protect themselves in the relationship. And their feelings about themselves is they feel inadequate. They feel like they're not doing it right. It's never good enough. That's shame. There's four basic fears. If you can find that slide, you can put it up there. Four basic fears. The fear of rejection. You're not going to like me. The fear of uh, abandonment, that you're going to leave me. The fear of failure, not getting it right, that you don't know what to do, that you're going to make a fool out of yourself. And the fear of death, which could be the literal or figurative, the fear, loss of identity, loss of control, loss of a way of life. And what I'm, what I'm telling you is that no matter what's going on in your relationship, to some degree we all feel fear and shame. When, when Adam and Eve did something wrong, they lost their connection with God. God came pursuing, they were withdrawing. They were hiding. And then when, you know, it got a little close for comfort and it got time to fess up and be open and vulnerable, they blamed. It's better to blame the other person. Part of the function of blame is it gets the attention off of you. But it's like if I can blame you for not loving me right, then I don't have to deal with the fact that I might way down deep feel like, what's wrong with me that nobody loves me? If I can blame you, I don't have to deal with that place in myself. When people feel afraid, they hide, they cover up, they don't show themselves, they don't want to be vulnerable. When they, when they feel ashamed, when you feel inadequate or unworthy or unlovable, it's it's kind of like a, a normal reaction to blame, to get the focus off of yourself. To, to, to make it be about the other person, they're not doing it right. If they would just love you, if they would talk to you right, if they would connect, if they would communicate. When what you really feel underneath all of that is, why won't they love me? Am I unlovable? Is there something wrong with me? And man, if, if, if you could know that, I tell guys sometimes, you know, that, that has a wife that kind of turns up the heat gets demanding and critical and angry. I said, you know what? If you could take a snapshot of a woman yelling at her husband, sometimes you could write underneath in the subtitle, she would be saying, please talk to me. Please love me. Please don't leave me. You think that's what he hears? No, he hears I'm not doing it right. You're always wrong. You know, uh, you're selfish, self-centered. You don't want to be with me. Or the guy who's pleading with his wife, 
who's getting angry with his wife. Uh, she's here and I'm never good enough for you. You're too needy. You demand too much of me. You know, I try and it's never good enough. And he's angry and even becomes abusive. You could write the same caption. <coughs> Please love me. Please don't leave me. Why can't, why won't you love me? <coughs> if we could know that about ourselves and one another, this whole dance would change. <clears throat> the counterintuitive thing to do when you feel afraid and ashamed is to come out in the open, is to expose it, is to talk about how you really feel underneath this external reaction. A lot of times what I do as a therapist is when people come in and they're in a reaction, it's all the surface stuff that's going on. So once I can hear him and then I can hear her and I can really understand what he's feeling and what she's feeling and they feel understood, then they settle down. And then they can, once they settle down and they get heard, they start talking about their deeper emotions. And it's amazing. They might start crying or they might start feeling something differently or showing a more softer, vulnerable side. And the other person's never seen that side before. But in the safety of this relationship with me, as I'm giving them permission to feel what they feel and validating it and hearing it, they go down a little bit deeper. Their partner sees that deeper place and they respond totally different to it. And then having been responded to in a place of fear and shame that feels so good, they're able to then give empathy back to their spouse. See, we all want to be loved. But you have to, like, be open to get love. You can't, like, just be surface to get real love and connection. God sought us out, pursued us, asked what was wrong, gave us an opportunity to confess, to come out in the open, and then he didn't shame us. He covered us. He made loincloths to cover us. He covers us with his love, and then he wants to put a ring on our finger, a robe on our back, kill the fatted calf, and have a party after we have committed the unpardonable sin, rejected him, disconnected. We need to learn to do that for each other. We need to learn when we're in that place to go a little deeper, even though it's counterintuitive. I want to show you another video, talk a few more minutes, and then we'll close. I was really struggling with something a few months ago and was in a really bad, dark place that I go in from time to time because I struggle with depression, have all my life. That's, that's the thing I struggle with when I struggle. And I was in a dark hole. And I tried talking to my wife about it on two occasions, which is difficult because I'm a withdrawer by nature, so I had to engage. And it just didn't go well. We both, she just couldn't get what I was saying. I, I didn't feel, it felt more frustrated afterwards. So then I went to one of my friends who always prays with me, and he, he offered to pray for me, which is what he does. He doesn't listen very well, but he prays good. And... uh 
And then I went to my other friend who listens really well, and he listened to some degree, but he just didn't get it. And he gave me some advice, which is helpful about 5 to 10% of the time. It didn't really help me. And so then I went to see, I went to have lunch with another friend of mine who's a Christian counselor, really good Christian counselor in town. And uh, we were sitting down there, and I didn't even really want to talk to him about it. I had given up at that point. I tried twice with my wife. I went to my two best friends. I wasn't going to tell him. But he asked how I was doing. And it just came out of me. And, you know, he sat there and listened a little while. And after I said what I said, he looked at me. And I hope you all are all adults here and get this in the right context. He just said, man, that really sucks. And I was, I I felt really good after that. (laughs) I mean, it was like someone sees me, gets me, understands me. I'm not crazy. I'm not alone in this. And then something inside of me just settled down. And I could start to think different. I tried to think different. I tried to pray my way out of it. I tried to talk about it. Nothing of that stuff worked. I just needed someone to see it, hear it get it, and then I was able to move and think differently. And then I was able to go back to my wife a third time and talk about it, and I persisted, and finally she got it. But I wouldn't have been able to do that had I not had someone say, wow, man, that really sucks. You know, it was found in a study done by a group of psychiatrists that even more than of all of the therapeutic techniques that they use, the most powerful agent of change came down to this. Does the client believe that the therapist genuinely like them? That's the thing that helps people change the most when they go into therapy. Not all the things that we do, not all the advice that we give, not all the scriptures quote, but do they really feel like we genuinely care about them? That produces the greatest change based on research. So so three things you need to do to really connect. Number one, you need to be emotionally engaged. Number two, you need to have and show true empathy. And number three, you you need to be willing to be vulnerable. In that little video, Brene Brown said, in order to connect with them, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. And I want to read to you this last uh, little passage and close with this. It comes out of a book called Sacred Stress, a radically different approach to using life's challenges for positive change. It was written by a guy that I got 12 days of training with last year named George Fowler from New York. He's an extremely skilled therapist and a, and a reverend um, uh, a female uh, pastor. And I would really encourage you to read it. If you liked anything that I said, if you read the book, you'll get a lot of the same things out of the book. But this is a quote directly from the book about being vulnerable. Openness to embracing our emotions is crucial to being authentic and knowing, truly knowing ourselves. Emotional awareness empowers us to understand our needs and communicate these needs directly. Yet, This willingness to expose ourselves emotionally is risky. At the heart of all emotional engagement lies vulnerability. 
Most people want to avoid vulnerability because of the possibility of painful rejection. They believe that to be vulnerable is to be weak, exposing them to disappointment and hurt. Avoiding vulnerability seems the safest course. The problem with this strategy is that in avoiding our vulnerability, we must hide our true selves. By erecting a wall, presenting a false persona of strength, we relegate our insecurities and needs into the shadows. We imprison ourselves, needing protection so we do not get hurt, only to discover our protective tactics work too well, as they also keep out any comforting responses to our vulnerabilities. Walls do not discriminate. The only way out of this prison is removing the wall and allowing ourselves to be vulnerable. At its core, vulnerability reminds us of our universal longing and need for connection with others. Remove vulnerability and we lose our greatest asset to connection, our authenticity. The risk and uncertainty inherent in vulnerability makes it the perfect raw material from which to build genuine relationships. Let's close with a prayer. Father, it's too much to present in too short of a period of time, but I just pray that my words, which I hope are your words, just be raiment to them, that, that your word would not go back, not come back void. Your word in Psalm 51.6 says that you desire, desire truth in the innermost parts. You say that the truth sets us free. It's our truth plus your truth. Help us to, to live authentic lives, not to hide and blame, but to live fully human and fully alive, just like you intended, which is scary. It doesn't feel safe. If any of these people like me, they've been hurt and disappointed so many times, there's a big part of themselves that they never share. They even keep it, try to keep it hidden from you as if we could hide from you like Adam and Eve tried to hide from you in the garden. Help us to be your ambassadors to one another. To offer true empathy, to true caring, not just a pat answer, not just advice, but true love. Not an answer, but connection in the face of fear and shame and hurt and pain. And then that you would use us, that you would fill us, that by your spirit, you would give us exactly the right things to say. That if we are in that place, in that dark place, that we would have the courage to come to you in our greatest time of need and to lay it all out honestly and openly so that you could cover us for your love covers a multitude of sins. That you're the lifter of our head. That you bore our shame on that cross. That there's nothing that you don't know about us. That there's nothing we can't tell you that would make us not that would make you not love us. In Romans 8, 1, it says that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the end of the chapter, it says that nothing can separate us from your love, which is in Christ Jesus. Help us to not let our fears and our shame run us. Help us to see in our partners and those that we love that there's more, there's more to them than meets the eye. There's, there's stuff going on underneath that behavior. 
Help us to see them the way that they really are. Help us to see what's underneath, the brokenness that's underneath, and to respond to that, not just to react to the surface. And I pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.